I want to spare an introduction, even of who I am, or that I'm so glad to be back to segue right off the song we just sang, because it explains something that happened to me two weeks ago before I preached this passage at RUF. I was about to stand up, just like I just did, and just like just happened again, that rare moment for preachers when God makes it clear what you had prepared to say is different than what he's preparing you to say now. Because I had come to these penitential psalms that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks at RUF, Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and I had come with these great messages that were so organized about how we confess, how we can be honest before God. And right before I got up to stand up, we were singing the, the final song before I stood up, and I, it hit me for the first time ever that these psalms are sacred ground. They're the fine china, the breakable china of David's life. Psalm 32 that we're going to talk about this morning, Psalm 51. These are his story. This is a real man's life. This is a real man's shame. This is a real man's healing. And to tell of his story is to tell of Jesus. And I found myself two weeks ago coming to Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 too hastily. Because I was trying to draw principles and insights out of them when this is a man pouring his life out for all the world, for all the generations to see both what he had done. This was his most shameful and regrettable moment. And I think if David was here this morning, I really don't know if he could hear his own words read aloud without breaking down. The way when you hear the name of a loved one who's died or perhaps some horrible, heinous sin that the Lord's delivered you from and you hear about it or you talk about it, you can't get through it with your composure. I don't think David could hear Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, even though he wrote it, and maintain his composure. Because to tell that story is to tell the story of what he was delivered from. And the thing about the Psalms isn't that it's just David's story or isn't just later Jesus' story, but it's our story. The Psalms aren't biographical sketches offered to us to learn from. They are offered to you as your own autobiography. They're offered to put words to your own story now. And so for David, when he penned these songs, dealing with the guilt, the, the guilt that just exploded, all the world knew about it. His betrayal of the Lord God, his betrayal of Uriah, his betrayal of Bathsheba, his betrayal of his people. Uh, all the world knew about it. And this is David dealing with it uh, in its sacred ground. Um, and it is the story of his deliverance as well. It's not just his story, like I was saying, but it's yours as well. It, it was expressive for him. It was him grappling with what had happened and telling the story. So kind of arising from within him and coming out. For us, it's, it's expressive too, but it's formative. It's forming you and I in the way that we can and should deal with our guilt. The way that we get to deal with our guilt uh, before God. And so I don't want to be hasty or inappropriate in the way we approach this psalm. I want us to uh, remember how real this is. This is a real man's life. This is your life. And so this is a sobering psalm. And it's a very life-giving psalm uh, to read. There are two ways I want us to look at this while we try to keep things personal. Uh, the first is this, when we cover up our sin, God will uncover it. And the second is, when we uncover our sin, God will cover it up. So the first, when we cover up our sin, God will uncover it. And when you uncover your sin, God will cover it 
back up. Uh, This is Psalm 32. Why don't I read this and then we'll pray. A Psalm of David. Blessed. Who is blessed? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, he's remembering when he did keep silent. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, God, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity any longer. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, or waters of judgment, they shall not reach him. You, I have found you to be a hiding place. For me, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is David taking on the voice of the Lord now, speaking to him and to us. David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And to us, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Lord, we have sung earlier, we have sung the very words that those who see you as you are right at this moment are singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We also remember, Father, what happened when people here on earth saw you in your glory. Sanity immediately returned. Humility immediately returned. And a sense of sin came upon them. Woe is me. I am not worthy. Depart from me, Lord. Uh, And yet, Father, we pray that you would come this morning and that by your coming, the same thing would happen with us. Would we become tiny? Would you become big and beautiful as you are? Father, would the hair on the back of our heads stand up because we heard from the living God, the Redeemer of our souls, the eyes who watch us, the voice that counsels us. And would the effect of this that, be, that is to your glory, would it be that we come out of our hiding? Would we start telling you the truth again? Would we start telling each other the truth again? And would you be pleased? We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, when it comes to uh, diagnosing ailments, there are some obvious things that can go wrong with the human body and there's some confusing things that are hard to diagnose that can go wrong with the body. X-rays can show pretty easily that an arm is broken, and it's pretty simple how to put that back together again. 
But there are diseases that maybe some of you deal with that are, ver- that are legendarily difficult to diagnose. Things like some kinds of diabetes or celiac disease or gluten intolerance kind of stuff. Doctors can think it's something else for the longest time when it's really this. Lupus is one of the most difficult diseases to correctly diagnose. And the reason why is because lupus affects and it has its tentacles wrapped around almost all of the systems of your body. Nervous system, muscular system, circulatory system. It affects so many parts of your body, so many organs, so many pieces of you that it can wreak havoc in almost the whole spectrum of what can go wrong in a body. And so it can be very, very difficult to diagnose because it can produce symptoms, everything from a little bit of joint pain that you think is arthritis, all the way to stomach aches that you think might be you ate something bad, all the way to dry eyes that you think is just allergies or you need a different contact prescription, all the way to memory loss that you might just attribute to, I'm not getting enough sleep or maybe I'm getting a little older. And so person A, B, C, and D, the joint pain, the stomach ache, the vision, the memory loss can all come to the same doctor and he could say Tylenol for the joint pain, saline solution for the eyes, drink some fluids and get some rest for the stomach ache and I'll refer you to a neurologist for the memory loss. Thinking those are obvious symptoms where in reality they could be rooted to something called lupus that's causing all of them and until you correctly diagnose it, uh, there's there's no treatment for it. There's no way to deal with it except throwing different uh, medicines like Tylenol or something at it. So lupus is legendarily difficult to correctly diagnose. And it's not a surprise to you to know that with the body, there's things that are obvious and hard to diagnose, but also with the soul. Did you know there are things that can make you spiritually sick? Did you know there are things that can spiritually kill you? Uh, Did you know that there are things that are spiritually easier to diagnose, like anger? When you're angry, you know it. You feel it. Your heart's beating faster. Your brain is telling you, I'm angry. Or you're anxious. You know it. When you're guilty, it can be legendarily difficult to trace it back to what's really going on. I would suggest to you that guilt is the lupus of the soul. Because it touches so many different pieces of your Humanity, your emotions, your spirituality, your body is affected by guilt. Your relationships, your thinking, everything. It affects such a wide range of issues just like lupus that it can wreak havoc in seemingly surface innocent little symptoms. And it can be very difficult to trace it back to what could be going on. Here's a few examples just to show you how difficult this can be. How seemingly benign Um, symptoms can be when really they could be caused by guilt that we have not dealt with or resolved in a permanent way. Um, For instance, the symptoms of I feel burned out. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I'm running on fumes. There's just too much going on. Could be that really you have overscheduled yourself. It could be a lot of stuff, just like that could be arthritis or it could be lupus. So it could be you've overscheduled yourself or it could be that you have learned to live in such a way that you fill up your schedule and you make sure that you're always busy. You always have something to do, some place to be because you don't know what to do in quiet, silent moments when you're confronted again with the guilty conscience. And so the busy schedule that you're now burning out from has nothing to do with scheduling. It has everything to do with you don't know how to deal with what you've done. 
You don't know where to take it. And so distraction is what you do with it. Or consider this one. You're apathetic. You're joyless in the Christian life. It's been years or months since you have felt the presence of the Lord, since you have actually wanted to come and worship on a Sunday morning, since you've had any interest in community with other believers. We could diagnose that as something like, well, the teaching's not great, or the preaching, or that small group leader just, it's, it's not real. Like, I don't feel like those people are very welcoming. And that could be an issue. Uh, or it could be that we don't believe, that we don't know, that we have been washed and cleaned and released and atoned for. And we are restless and anxious on our insides. Because we still think that when God thinks of me, he gets angry. When he thinks of me, he rolls his eyes in exasperation. We defend ourselves with a great personality, with humor, with extroversion. Because we want to keep people, we want to go on offense and keep people just far enough away from us that they can't ever get to know me. That I can put a front up. That I can make sure you stay about 10 feet away so that we can get to know each other but not really because I don't really want to be known because I really don't want to see you and I don't want you to see me. And so we diagnose it as I'm a nice guy. Everybody likes me. When in reality it's I'm a guilty guy and I don't want anyone to know me and I use a personality or humor to keep people far away. Benign and innocent symptoms that might have something much deeper going on With our spouse, we always have an excuse. With our kids, with our parents, there's a ready list of excuses of why I was late to work, why I was late turning in the project, why I snapped at my wife, why I disobeyed my parents. We defend ourselves. We call it defensiveness. I need to get better about not being defensive. It could be that we have no idea what it looks like to own guilt and still walk free. And so we defend ourselves. So the point with all of this isn't to to overwhelm you. The point of it is to show you that just like lupus, there can be all of these tip of the iceberg, above the water symptoms and things going on in our lives that we misdiagnose and don't realize that actually beneath the water there's this massive hunk of guilt, massive hunk of unresolved tension, unresolved guilt uh, between us and the Lord and us and other people. And I also wanted to show you how difficult it can be to diagnose it. Which means it's a really gracious and kind thing that God has done for us here in verse 3 and 4 when he connects symptoms with diagnosis. That's what he does. He gives us the diagnosis first. In verse 3 he says, David says, when I kept silent, which is when I didn't deal with my guilt, when I hid from it, when I excused it, when I misdiagnosed it, when I didn't see it. When I pretended everything was okay, my bones wasted away. Groaning day and night, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped like in the heat of the summer. David was saying what was going on is all of this unspoken, unresolved baggage from what I had done with Bathsheba and Uriah and my people and my God. And he went into micromanaging mode after that. Fix it. Make it better. Atone for it myself so I can approach the Lord, approach my people with a clean conscience. And the opposite happened. His bones felt like they were breaking inside of him, wasting away. Imagine, that's a metaphor. Imagine the pain he's trying to describe to us. 
you're walking along, but someone is breaking your bones inside of you. And you're still having to do life with a skeleton that's all broken. What David is saying is that hiding our sin or misdiagnosing our guilt and not dealing with it will break us. And the reason why is because covering our guilt doesn't, or covering up our guilt doesn't cover our guilt. We can hide from our guilt, but it won't hide from us. And the reason why is, um, is this. I found out this past week, I was telling my students the other night, um, I never knew this, but I was looking at, I don't know why, but I was uh, looking at Google images of mountain lions, um, and I found one from Cloudcroft. The lady through her living room window took a picture of a mountain lion guarding a, a deer that it had just killed. This is the part I didn't know. Mountain lions, oftentimes when they kill their prey, they will bury it to come back to it later or for whatever other reason. Um, and you would think they would bury it well, but they don't. So I saw this mountain lion sitting here and then about a two and a half foot tall mound of dirt with antlers sticking out of one side and two legs sticking out of the other is what I mean when I say mountain lions bury their prey. And that lion is sitting there as if to say, nothing to see here. I'm just catching some sunshine. And that is, that is who we are. We bury our guilt. We hide our guilt. And God sees it and everybody else sees it. People know why you've all of a sudden become quiet and removed. Your spouse knows why your complexion has changed. People in your church know when you stop showing up at things consistently, it's not because you're busy. It's because you're torn apart with guilt. And we sit there and say, nothing to see here. And there's antlers sticking out of us and feet out of the back. And people are like, really? And in a sense, God is like, really? There's nothing to see here? We can hide from our guilt, but our guilt won't hide from us. We can cover it up, but we can't cover it. We can't atone for it. We can't wash ourselves of it. And so it begins to whittle away at us from the inside out. And there's two reasons why it begins to hurt. One is because there's curse attached to sin, because this is God's world, and sin has curse attached to it. So sin will always produce death. The wages of sin is death. There's a macroscopic death it produces, and there's little microbursts of death that sin always produces. So there's a way in which sin will always feel like death in that regard, but there's a bigger way why sin breaks us and guilt and hiding will break us. And that's the, the, what I was saying earlier when I told you the two things I want to see, or we want to see here, is, is when we try to cover up your guilt, God will uncover it. When you cover up your guilt, God will uncover it. David didn't just say, I had a guilty conscience, I felt bad about what I did, and so I decided to go confess to the Lord. David knew who was behind the pain. Your hand was laid heavy upon me Day and night, unrelenting pain or frustration in his life. And he traced it back to uh, God himself. And this is the more beautiful sense in why hiding our guilt or not dealing with it will hurt us. Because God is doing something about the estranged relationship between him and you. Between him and David, between him and his people. Now really quickly... Some of you know this, some of you don't. You might be thinking, but I thought, Ben, that Christians were forgiven once and forever. There's not this, it's not this point where like, 
I committed three sins today, so I have to ask for forgiveness three times. And if I ask for forgiveness only two times, then that one sin is kind of floating out there and I'm unforgiven of it and I'm liable for judgment for that. That's not what I'm saying. There's a sense in which legally the Christian once forever, when God declares you righteous, you are righteous legally before him. And that is the sense in which Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of God of Christ, not even your sin. That is always true. But there's not just a legal sense in which we're related to God. There's also a relational sense in which we're related to God. And that is the way, that is the place that sin does affect our relationship with God. The Old Testament is filled with God saying, my people's sins have wearied me. They've exhausted me. New Testament says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In a sense, there's a sense in which God is affected. It responds to um, our sin, our hiding, our guilt. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that the estranged relationship, our feelings, our experience of it, the relational aspect of us and God, the legal aspect has never changed. I'm married to Anna. When I sin against Anna, our marriage doesn't dissolve. The covenant holds. She is my wife. But until we come together and honestly, candidly deal with what happened between us, y'all know what it's like, right? Relationship doesn't go forward or it limps forward until you deal with that. And it's the same way with us and God. Until we deal with the stuff we've buried right behind us and the stuff that we continue to bury, there will be that relational tension, pulling, stretching, And because we don't have hearts that are interested in dealing with that, God does have a heart that's interested in dealing with that. So if Anna loves me and I have sinned against her or our family and am not dealing with it, I'm denying it, I'm running from it, I'm misdiagnosing it. Oh, babe, I'm sorry, I'm just busy. And she knows there's something more. She will in one way or another insist upon us dealing with that. In one way or another, she will keep her finger on the wound until it's dealt with. And that is exactly what the Lord God does with his people. And he says it here in verse 8. I will instruct you. This is the Lord speaking, not David telling us that he will instruct us. This is David giving voice to the Lord here. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And he says, my steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That is the exact same God who a few verses before David says, lays his hand heavy upon his people with affliction or discipline when we don't deal with our guilt. Same God who both has his eye on you in love, counsels you, instructs you, and in that counsel and through that instruction sometimes will instruct us through the pain. I think if we grasped grasped this, the way God in his love, in his jealousy for you, the way he uses conviction or pain like that, I think if we grasp this, we would be people who are much quicker to repent and confess. There would be a smaller and smaller lag time between when I know I've done wrong or when I've been confronted with doing wrong and when I own it and confess it and say, God, can you do something about this two and a half foot mound that's very obvious for everybody? Think about this real quick. Hunger shouldn't keep you from food. It should drive you towards food. Being dirty shouldn't be the reason why you don't need a shower. It should drive you to cleaning yourself. Feeling guilty shouldn't drive you away from God, but towards him. 
But when you put those three things together, you're like, that makes sense, that makes sense, and I never run to God when I feel guilty. When I feel hungry, I go to food. When I feel dirty, I get a shower. When I feel guilty, I run away from the cleanser, the washer, the atoning one, the redeeming one, the forgiving one, the renewing one. And I just don't get that. And you don't either because sin is insanity. And God has to reach into our insanity and call us out of it. And so this morning, go in your mind's eye to the places you feel guilty, the places you have not started talking with God about what you have done, the places we've been making excuses, hiding, denying, covering up. Go to those places and ask yourself, why am I not running towards the Lord with this? The way I want to run to lunch in about an hour and a half because I'm feeling hungry now. One side note, if you're not feeling any pain or any conviction is kind of what I mean, not necessarily pain, but conviction, it's time to sober up. Because that is where you're getting to a scarier place. Romans 1 talks about it when God hands people over to the cravings of the flesh. And when you begin to not feel anything anymore, you don't feel any conviction about that. It's a seared conscience. And you might be thinking, well, I'm lost then. Because Romans 1 is a very dour depiction of humanity. But it's followed by the rest of Romans. Which would suggest to you that even if you feel apathetic and numb, you have not felt conviction over what you have done. Add it to the list of reasons you need Jesus desperately this morning. Let it be another reason you need him. The way a dirty person needs a shower or a hungry person needs food. A numb person who feels nothing, who has had their conscience seared, needs Jesus needs his spirit, needs his action now more urgently than the person who does, right? So you're not, you shouldn't be walking further from God, but running all the faster to him. Here's, if you add all this up, here's what happens. God himself says, sons, daughters, don't be like a horse or a mule where the rider has to put his entire body weight into a piece of metal that rips their lip so that they will turn left or right. He's saying it doesn't have to be like this. It really doesn't. I don't have to put my entire body weight in in pulling you through bones wasting away, through groaning, through discipline, through affliction. He's saying, let's learn together. At the first tinge of conviction, you get to confess to me. At the first moment, your conscience speaks up and says, that was wrong what I just said to them, or what I just thought, that is when you can repent. Not three weeks later when you've forgotten about it and so it's like it's kind of time has atoned for it or we have cleaned ourselves up or whatever. But that's the moment. That's what God is saying. He's saying, let, let the godly pray to him while he may be found. He's not just talking about in the day of salvation before the day of judgment comes. He's saying now. You get to now. You can do it now. Now how? It's because of the second thing we said. It is true if you cover up your sin, God will systematically uncover it. And sometimes that's a very painful process. But the opposite is true as well. And we will never begin honestly confessing and owning our guilt before God and before one another until we realize in our minds and in our hearts that when we uncover our sin, God will cover it up. And he is not a mountain lion. He knows how to cover sin. 
He knows how to wash it. He knows how to atone from it. He knows how to separate you from it. He knows how to smooth over the relational estrangement to restore us to the joy of his salvation. He knows how to do that. And so he actually, when we take our guilt to him, when we run to him with it in our moments of conviction, we are running to a person who can do something about it. That's the ironic thing about this psalm. Remember, this is a poem. This is a song. Songwriters have to play with words to get the syllables to fit, to get things to rhyme. And good songwriters play with words in an artful way. David's doing that here. This language of covering and uncovering. And he says, when I, earlier on in the psalm, when I tried to cover up my sin, God uncovered it. And then he says, right after that, and then I uncovered my sin to you, and you covered it. And you're like, which is it, David? Is your sin covered or not? That's the point. David is playing with words here, showing you that there is a place you can go to have your guilt catapulted into the infinite universe where you will never see it again, and neither will God. There is a place you can go now, this morning, to take that. And we will only do that. We will only become become people who repent and confess quickly when we believe, when we see from places like this, God appealing to you that he is the coverer of sin. Listen to Psalm 133, or sorry, Psalm 103. Listen to this. This is what I mean. This is God appealing to you. He is persuading with you. He is trying to, he he is not trying, he is successfully getting through to his people, through his spirit, in places like Psalm 103 and Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, that that he is safe to bring your sin to. This is Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not, does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. There's two metaphors in there that should catch your eye. God is saying, put away your calculator. Stop trying to figure out when my patience is going to run out with you. Because he says, as far as east is from west... And as high as the heavens are above the earth. Both of those are incalculable distances. They're infinite. Can you tell me how far the east is from the west or as far as the heavens are above the earth? Good luck. He's saying stop trying to figure it out. The point isn't how many times I'll forgive you, how much I love you, how patient I am. The point is that you're free. The point is that I have dealt with your sins. 
Here's a story for how he does it, and then we end. David uncovers his sin because he knows God has already covered it up. When I lived in Philadelphia, over the four years that I was there, I got there right when a new mayor took office, and so there was still some baggage from the previous mayor, and Philadelphia, uh, the city of Philadelphia, has a chronic budget problem. They never have enough money to do anything. Um, and it causes all of these other problems in the city. Potholes, crime, houses that burn down before the fire department can get there. And uh, when I got there, I learned the root behind the budget problems. I don't know the statistic. I think it was something astounding, like 50 or 60% of homeowners in the city of Philadelphia do not pay their property tax. Which means the city is losing out on 50 or 60% of the revenue that's supposed to be coming to it. And so the previous administration had cracked down on this. He said the city is going to go bankrupt if we don't start recouping that money now. And so he increased the penalties. He said, uh, you know, maybe it used to be a $1,000 penalty for not filing your taxes on time, and now it's a $3,000 penalty. And there's also criminal penalties bringing, uh, coming into play now too. Jail time or probation or other things like that. Coercive power was brought to the table to try to get people to pay up. And you know what effect it had? Less people paid their taxes. Nobody came forward. And the city budget crisis even got worse. So Mayor Nutter, when he got there, realized nothing we have tried before has worked. So why don't we try the craziest idea of all? So his approach was the city of Philadelphia hereby forgives all tax debt and removes all penalties for not having reported your taxes or paid them on time. Everybody starts at a clean slate. You have to come to City Hall um, and acknowledge your lack of payment and we will begin to work with you on reassessing your home value and we will work with you on payment plans. But if you come, or he says, the, let me get the order right. First, the city has forgiven all debt and removed all penalty. Second, come and confess so that we can start on a new foot. And the response was dramatically different than the first time. People came out of the woodwork and said, I've never paid taxes. I, all the, I threw all those things in the, in, the, uh, in the trash can. Or they said, I was terrified of the tax man coming. I was terrified of losing my house. I hid. I didn't answer any phone calls. I didn't look at any mail. I hid. I ran. I covered it up because I couldn't pay the debt. And what brought them out of hiding was when they heard that another has stepped up to pay the debt. And they came out of hiding back into the light, owning their guilt, owning their debt because it no longer was hanging over their head. Do you realize that God says the order, the chronology is important in terms of repentance and grace? He says it explicitly in Romans 2. God's patience, his kindness, and his forbearance comes first. Repentance comes after. You don't repent to try to get God to be patient, kind, and forbearing with you. He is patient, kind, and forbearing. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He does forgive our sins. He does separate them as far as east is from west. Therefore, you get to confess. You get to repent. You get to turn today. You get to start talking about in your small group stuff you've never talked about before because you're free. That's the order and it's crucial. 
David knew what kind of God he had through God's revelation in Scripture. And so probably after a year or so, the Spirit began to use that Scripture to prick his conscience, to break his bones so that David would say, Uncle, just like a hungry person says lunch, David said, I need him because he can do something about what's going on in here that I can't do anything about. Order matters. Forgiveness first. And then coming out of hiding. Because you know another has carried the debt. Jesus is our high priest. The book of Hebrews is very eager to persuade you of this. But Jesus isn't just a high priest because he atones for your sin. He does. He is the sin bearer. He is the one who pays the tax bill that was delinquent. He is the one who deals with the penalty and the debt that was accrued because somebody has to pay it. But he is also your high priest because he now takes you by the hand and leads you into repentance, teaching you how to confess, giving you words to begin to pray in confession. So he is a priest much more than that. And so let me just remind you of a few of these verses as our closing. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered up by the one who can cover them. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit, or in whose their conscience isn't torn, because they're being honest now. And Jesus is why, further down in the psalm, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. And so, saints of the living God, pray to him while he may be found. Come to the Lord in honesty and in candor. And know that he is your hiding place. That he will protect you from trouble. That he surrounds you with songs of deliverance, even now. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to do the impossible to diagnose the legendarily impossible to diagnose to point to places in our lives where we are living in a way that is disjointed and dislocated from you in ways that grieve you we rejoice that you are the patient husband but you are also the restless husband in the sense that you don't play along with our games and our hiding but you insist that we have a real relationship and you insist that we don't live that relationship estranged from you. And so I pray that even this morning you would show your power by convicting us and also show your power by persuading us that we can come to you, we can confess to you and we can move on with our lives with you because you've covered up our sin. We ask this in Christ's name because he is the one who has accomplished this for us. Amen.